Hey Onscript listeners, the day has finally come for our big announcement. We've got something huge to announce, but we're not going to tell you up front. Instead, we've buried this treasure of an announcement deep within the episode to keep you listening and to keep you on your toes. It's like one of those Facebook posts where they say, and you won't believe what he said next. And you have to click through like 10 screens to get to it. So just keep the tape rolling. And just before we start, please note that we want to do another Q&A episode in the near future, like the one you're about to listen to. So just zing your questions on over to our Twitter account, at OnScriptPodcast, or to our Gmail account, OnScriptPodcast at gmail.com. And we will not only answer, but also resolve all of your deepest questions pertaining to the Bible. On this episode, Matt and I sit back to discuss on script some listener questions and questions we have for each other, including some of my questions for Matt about his new book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which we will have a link to on our website, onscript.study. Finally, I want to thank the two folks who donated in response to our last episode. We were truly blown away by your generosity uh, and we want to express our appreciation and gratitude to you by not only saying thank you, but hopefully continuing to produce good on-script podcasts. And, uh, and that money will be well spent and reinvested back in on-script so that we can better serve you, our listeners. And if you'd like to become our first monthly donor, please do not let me stop you. Uh, head on over to our onscript.study page and there's a donate tab and you can find out how to give there. Okay, now on to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. At OnScript, we are engaging in conversations about biblical scholarship and theology. This is Matt Bates, along with Matt Lynch. We are having a conversation today, so we are hosting one another. Welcome. Uh, Matt, no, welcome to you. <laughs> welcome to you, Matt. Mm. Uh, so, Part of the purpose here, I think, in doing a joint episode is to give us an opportunity to reflect a little bit about the past of OnScript. We've been going for a little over a year now, which is kind of astonishing, uh, and also to think about maybe where the ship is sailing eventually. Uh, are we heading to a certain kind of port? Uh, where are we going? I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe Matt Lynch knows. Oh, I, have, uh, so, I have a very clear sense of where we're going. That's good. Someone's got to have a vision. Matt's the visionary. I'm, I'm just along for the ride. So maybe as a way of kicking off our conversation today, Matt, why don't you tell us about a favorite memory that you've had in doing on script this last year? Well, um, thanks, Matt. First of all, I'll just kick off by saying that I think probably most listeners would agree that the biggest event of 2016 was the launch of OnScript. I can't really think of anything else that was significant or newsworthy. So, um, so yeah, it was it was nice to be that event in 2016. So that was special. Um, also, in terms of memories, gosh, there there were there were a few uh, interviews where they they've really stuck with me. Um, when I did the probably the interview with John Levinson is the one that stands out most in my mind. 
first of all, because he's a real hero of mine. I've read probably all of his books, and his his book, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, is probably one of the best books in biblical studies that I've ever read. And uh, and his the, the book I interviewed him on, Love of God, was fantastic. But also it was memorable because I got to the end of the recording, and I looked down at my recorder, and I realized I had not pressed the record button. And ouch! Yeah, yeah, and and so it was, it was a it was a very awkward moment, and and so I I sort of it, it was a progress of revelation to to Levinson. I said to him, "Oh, I don't think we got all of that." And then he said, "Oh, how much do you think we we missed?" And I said, "Well, all of it." And and to his credit, his instantaneous response was, "Oh, fine, let's just do it again." So the Levinson interview you got was our second interview together. The first one uh, was was really good, and I thought the second one was good too. But that that's probably something that really stands out in my mind. How about you, Matt? So favorite and least favorite memory seems like combined there. Well, I agree with you that there was no event in 2016 that would trump the launch of the OnScript podcast. Mm, Certainly mm. it was the the event of the year. Um, So with that bad pun, I'll I'll answer your uh, your question. Yeah, yeah, move on from the bad puns quick. Um, Yeah, so I think that, that... it is true, probably, that the technological failures, the spectacular ones, are particularly memorable. Now, I don't know that this is one of my favorite memories, but uh, the only technological failure that I've had with a guest was, with all people, uh, Richard Hayes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was actually an episode you and I co-hosted together, so I'm blaming all technological failures on you. Yeah, that, um, that was as, uh, that was a, a mess. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we had a similar kind of experience where we we recorded our interview with Hayes, uh, and it was phenomenal. Um, and uh, again, Hayes is uh, a personal hero of mine, much like Levinson is uh, for Matt Lynch. Uh, and uh, so when we got to the end, we had no indication that we weren't recording. Everything looked good on our end. Uh, and um, when we got to the end, we, our file was corrupt yeah. for uh, hitherto unknown reasons, although yeah. we think it might have to do with a microphone plug-in and replug-in. But uh, Richard Hayes was so gracious about it. He also uh, agreed to do a second interview with us, uh, even though we said, you know, by all means, you don't feel like you need to. We can do something else to cover your work uh, and just appreciate (laughs) the first conversation. But he was very gracious to us. Um, So, yeah, you asked for favorite memories, but I I couldn't help but uh, share that memory is maybe one of the favorite memories that's bound up with that is how gracious Hayes was Mm. uh, as as part of the the technological glitch that we had had in in the interview recording. Yeah, It's nice when your heroes in the field are actually really kind and gracious people. When those two come together, that's yeah. that's kind of nice. It is good. If I ever become a hero in the field, I'm planning on being a real jerk. So yeah. that's that's kind of you know what I'm you know yeah. thinking I'll do if if I ever attain to that kind of status yeah. is yeah. you know that that reminds me of the deep thought. Remember those by Jack Handy? Yes. He, he's he had one. He said, "I hope, I hope when I'm wealthy, I'm not mean to poor people like I am now." <laughs> do you remember that one? Wow. I, do, I don't remember that one in particular, okay. but uh, yeah. that is that is profound. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I guess circling back to maybe a favorite memory, I, I 
I would have to say, I mean, all of them are memorable in their own mm-hmm. way. The first one, of course, uh, was the one I did with Josh Jip, uh, and that's particularly memorable because it's your first one, and yeah. uh, maybe I was a little bit more anxious about how that would go. Uh, but maybe the one that is most memorable to me would be the interview with John Barclay, mm-hmm. uh, partly because his book was just absolutely smashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I loved how he he managed to sort of to create a narrative around his own life with regard to that book that I think mm-hmm. was, was really opening uh, uh eye-opening to me about how uh how much this book had emerged from his own life story as mm. he he spoke very eloquently about uh, a year of service that he had done and it was either in pakistan or afghanistan i can't remember mm. uh but that uh his experiences there fed into his understanding of of obedience to christ and of grace and how they interface but i loved at the interview at the end of his interview that he managed somehow uh, to circle it all back to the Eucharistic celebration and the Lord's Supper, mm. and to talk uh, to talk in the end about how uh, really all of this moves to doxology for him, and mm. uh, and that uh, that grace uh, is maybe most profoundly expressed uh, in the Lord's Supper and the coming together of uh, of the family of God together around the table. Loved that, and how he was able to circle back around to the Eucharist. Yeah, including its social implications, which which he's probably going to develop in a later work, right? That's right. Yeah, I do remember that he he was moving in that direction with his future research, so we'll all be anxious to see what John Barclay continues to produce. Yeah, Matt, because you're in New Testament, and and I I recognize that for our listeners, they might not be able to geographically locate us, and so Matt is, Matt Bates, New Testament is in Illinois, Matt Lynch, uh, Old Testament, I'm in the UK right now, even though obviously I'm not British. So just for listeners who might be confused sometimes as, and, and need geography to help them know where we are. Um, but as a, in New Testament, is, is there a sense yet of the impact of Barclay's work and how it's being picked up? Or is it it's probably too well, early? These things take a while to have sort of they do. Have their impact, don't they? They take a while. I think they take a while to impact the published field for sure yeah. as— in general, whenever you're writing a book, there's usually a, approximately a two-year lag between what you can really engage and the publication of your book. When you finish a manuscript, you know, you it's usually you submit it to the press. They ask for some sort of revisions in light mm-hmm. of review. You make revisions, mm-hmm. and then it's nine months once those once the press accepts your manuscript, uh, or twelve months to publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know. Usually you've you've spent a lot of time drafting the manuscript, and then something new comes along, of course, that you wished you could engage, uh, but you can't, as that window of opportunity has already passed. Mm-hmm. So some of the earliest books to engage Barclay are going to be coming out right now. Sure. And uh, I think that uh, the overall sense is, I, uh, as the buzz on the street, I guess, is that Barclay's book is the most important book that has come along since E.P. Sanders, uh, and I think that 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 assessment is going to prove to be justified. I, I do believe that, that this book is um, going to be the definitive book in biblical studies on Paul, uh, and it's going to have enormous impacts for systematic theology, too. With, with the exception, Matt, this is a good segue of Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. Congratulations oh. on that publication. 
<laughs> well, th thank, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, I don't think that I'm going to be making the same kind of scholarly impact that Barclay makes, but I do get to pick up some of his ideas. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his book, uh, actually, his book came out right after I'd finished the first draft of my manuscript. Mm -hmm. So I was able to add um, some engagement mm -hmm. with Barclay, and actually a lot of what he had done complemented my argument. So yeah. I didn't have to rewrite anything. I just kind of had to find some places to fit in engagement with him. And then Scott McKnight, who wrote the foreword for my book, um, he uh, he really fronted some of Barclay's work in his in, her, in his foreword to uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, oh, because I think that uh, that he realizes, I think Scott McKnight realizes that a lot of this debate about how salvation works comes mm -hmm. down to different kinds of construals of grace, uh, and so I think that uh, Scott was immediately jumping on that and seeing how important that is to the ongoing discussion and that Barclay's work is really going to lead the way for all of us. Yeah, Matt, uh, a few of our listeners have wanted to hear about your book. So l let's just take a couple of minutes to talk about it. Um, I, I kind of had to pin you down on this because you, you didn't want this podcast to become a vehicle for promoting your work. But I think I think it's at least worth a few questions, don't you think? Um, <laughs> feeling <laughs> feeling awkward, Matt. <laughs> feeling awkward. <laughs> well, um, uh, okay. What well, salvation by you know with a title like salvation by allegiance alone, uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna ruffle some feathers with that with that one. Uh, so so what's the what's the basic premise of your book? Um, well, uh, I guess I will answer a couple questions since you've put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> but I do truly not, I don't want this to, to be mostly about my book, as uh, there's a plenty of other fine literature that we can point people to. Like my book, field. for <laughs> yeah. instance. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, like Matt Lynch's book, uh, who's not afraid of self-promoting, apparently. In, um, I, I'm not either. Matt, but, I, was breaking, but, uh, I was breaking into a, a cold sweat there because you said it takes two years for a book to have its impact. It's been three years since the publication of my book. And I'm just, I'm just not feeling it yet. Um, but, uh, but I, it, it it's probably going to be three and a half years, and I bet its full impact yeah. will come this year. So absolutely. And, and, I, I, and I, I, also, I also just want to say, as a co-host, that just because you've published three books and I published one, does not make those three books combined better than my one book. Um, that 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 the math of scholarship doesn't work that way. Yeah. So well, it's a. Yeah, it's almost like a Trinitarian sort of argument. You can't really argue that the no. three is more important than the one or the one more important than the three or anything exactly. like Exactly. If you start emphasizing one exactly or the other, right. you fall right into heresy. Yes, absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll remain united in a kind mm -hmm. of Trinitarian fashion uh, in this podcast then. Yeah. All right, so circling back to your question then, um, which you asked about um, just the main premise of the book. Is yeah. that what you asked about? Yeah, that's about? right. Um. Well, what I'm arguing in the book is that the word pistis in Greek, that's tr tra translated faith traditionally, uh, and uh, the cognates associated with that word, so the pistuo verb and other language of pistis, um, that that language is better rendered allegiance in some contexts. Now, I'm not arguing that it always should be understood or translated as allegiance, but that in certain contexts, um, we can make an argument that it's better rendered allegiance. This is um, like one part of the, the major thesis. The other part would be that our understandings of the gospel have been um, slightly deficient, I think, in some, uh, some of our theologies, and that our understanding of the gospel has tended to leave out the part that Jesus uh, has been enthroned and become the king and is now ruling. 
Now, Christians have recognized, of course, all along that Jesus is the king and so on and so forth. This isn't new. Uh, what is new is that I think that this has tended to be excluded from the gospel frequently, that uh, here we have the gospel on the one hand that we're saved you know, by faith, uh, justified by faith might be the language used, and uh, as an additional factoid that might be tacked on, it's like, and by the way, and Jesus is the king, you know, um, so that we would ultimately want to give our, our lives to him or something like that. But that's actually not considered internal to the gospel. Uh, the Jesus is king part has been considered external to the gospel. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to argue in the book, and I hear I'm building on Scott McKnight, N.T. Wright, and others' work, um, is that the, 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 a better, stronger understanding of the gospel, both as it's in, articulated by Paul, as it's also articulated in the Synoptic Gospels, as it's also articulated in the speeches and acts where the gospel is proclaimed, is that the climax of the gospel, the very center point, uh, is that Jesus has become the king. And this colors, then, how we need to understand the pistis language when we talk about, uh, you know, language of believing into the Christ, pistuo ace Christon in Greek, that this language of believing into the Christ uh, uh, involves the idea of giving loyalty to the king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in, in terms of the the uses of the term pistis in the New Testament— there are cases where you do see it as a, a more cog- cognitive act of uh, assenting to some set of, of propositions or uh, assertions, right? Yes, you do. And especially whenever the word pistio is followed by the word hati uh, in Greek, okay. I believe that, um, then we, we frequently that. see... Right. Yeah, I believe that, then oftentimes propositional content is being introduced. I believe that Jesus is the king. Then then that meaning shades more toward mental assent. So, and I would I would argue that allegiance involves that idea too. But go, go ahead. Well, so, so how about like when that guy says, I believe, help my unbelief. What, what, how would you situate that kind of use of, of belief? Yeah. Um, well, what I'm arguing in the book is not that the word faith is completely wrongheaded or that mm-hmm. it, it, it never works. Um, so I do think that sometimes it does involve ideas of, um, you know, a need to mentally assent or mm-hmm. things like that uh, to uh, Jesus's power or that his capability. Um, yeah. These things oftentimes, I think, though, are, are abstracted from the kingdom of God. And I would argue, actually, that whenever we have instances like that where um, Jesus is being put forward as a worker of mighty deeds, uh, this is actually an enactment of the kingdom, that he is uh, the anointed king who uh, is going to be enthroned, and these are sort of proleptic anticipations of that that future enthronement, Mm -hmm. that as the designated king, he already wields considerable authority uh, from the Father, and that he is able to uh, do these mighty deeds because of uh, his position as the coming king uh, that will be enthroned at the right hand of God eventually. So I I think that we would want to, on the one hand, say that uh, those kinds of meanings could shade toward the direction of, like, I I don't necessarily acknowledge you as having that power yet, but I I, I realize I should and I need help Mm -hmm. uh, in coming to an acknowledgement of that, but I don't think that they're wholly wholly divorced from allegiance ideas either. So so then those those occasions where it is mental assent are subordinate in their conceptual framework to the larger category of allegiance. And so so those two can yeah. work together. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, I would say that's a fair summation. Mm-hmm. So the the language of king designate is that 
is it your your terminology? I hadn't really seen that before. Maybe it's all over New Testament studies. It's it's not all over New Testament studies yet, but I suspect it will be. I I, I first encountered it in the work of Dale Allison in his mm-hmm. book Constructing Jesus, uh, which is yeah. a, a very heavy hitting scholarly monograph uh, that deals with issues of the historical Jesus and memory, and yeah. uh, it's an excellent book. Um, but uh, that's where I first encountered it, and when I did it, it I think that it gave me some language to. Um, to speak about some categories I'd already seen, but I hadn't been able to frame it quite in that way. So it was very helpful as he gave me a grammar to speak about um, distinctions between Jesus as he's first of all anointed uh, and then Jesus later on as he's enthroned. So so then for you, the idea of enthronement takes on a special importance. And and are you referring then specifically to his enthronement on the cross as in the Gospel of John uh, or more specifically, the the ascension, or kind of both of those things together. Yeah, I think um, we would want to say that they're 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 related to one another. That mm-hmm. obviously his actions on the cross uh, result in the Father vindicating him by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand. So we can't separate them, uh, and we we especially can't separate them because in the Gospel of John, um, it's very deliberately conflated by. Uh, the Gospel of John, this language of hupsao or exaltation language, mm-hmm. uh, is very deliberately both um, when Jesus is lifted up, hupsao language, mm-hmm. lifted up on the cross. Uh, this is an anticipation of his being lifted up into glory, uh, so that they're they're very the moment of the cross is the moment of glory for him, right? For the author of the Gospel of John, it's a veiled glory, uh, but nevertheless, this is the means by which he does come to be enthroned as the King. Mm-hmm. So the crucifixion is uh, in a sense, you know, the uh, the beginning of his enthronement. Mm-hmm. And I think that the author of the Gospel of John wants to point us to that with his specific use of the language. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I think that that placing the enthronement of Jesus at the center of of the Gospel message uh, is, is something I hadn't really thought about before. So whether you're kind of drawing together insights from other authors or not— um, I think your particular formulation of it is, is really helpful. So thanks for your book, Matt. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think if if the book accomplishes anything, I do think that my hope is that it will help people to see that it's not all about the cross. The cross is extraordinarily important. We don't want to say that it's not about the cross. Yeah. Uh, the atonement that's offered there is is absolutely central, but it's not all about the resurrection either. It's also about uh, Jesus' enthronement at the right hand, and that, that we want to think about his becoming king as central to the gospel, so that when we're responding to the gospel, we're responding to Jesus as the king. Yeah, that reminds me of when I was in undergraduate. You and I have talked about this, but there was a some very intramural debate about lordship salvation, and and the debate went something like, when you trust in Jesus, when you believe in him, do you have to believe he's Lord to be saved? Or can you just believe in him, that he's God or something like that? And, yeah. and I think that's, that's a prime example of what happens when you bifurcate mental assent and commitment to Jesus as, or allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, well, how about we, how about we circle back? We started down this trajectory, and you said you had a vision uh, for where you think we're heading. Mm. Uh, where is mm. this ship sailing, our podcast as a whole? Yeah. Uh, you need to tell me, because I don't know that I know where we're going. Yeah, Matt, Matt I um, I don't know if we should take this off air, but I guess we can, we're among friends. 
Um, I've just been thinking a lot over the last uh, couple months, and you know, I do appreciate your friendship, and I like, I do like co-hosting with you. But I'm, I'm starting to feel like, uh, I don't, I don't know how to put this, that maybe you're not enough. Um, what exactly, what exactly are you saying here, Matt? Well, I just, I, I, I feel like. Our original vision for this podcast was to extend the conversation that you and I are having. And I think it's time for me to find maybe maybe for both of us to find one more friend uh, to join us in this on-script venture. Matt, just think about this verse. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Whoa. Okay. That's biblical. Yep. Three co-hosts might be biblical. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Thanks. All right. Yep. Well, we'll we'll come back to that later, and because we want to keep people listening, we have we have a few listener cl- questions that we need to cover. Uh, how, okay. how about we go through those? Sure. People are listening. Yeah. That's um. We, our, our our five listeners sent in five questions, and so we ought to respect them and answer the questions. So we have one from, well, actually two, from the Theology Book Group on Twitter. And they're asking, how does reception history change the way that biblical studies is done? So, Matt, do you want to take a stab at that first, and then I'll jump in? Sure. Um, I think reception history is changing the way biblical studies is done, partly because biblical studies was obsessed with origin. I think, for a long time, meaning where did these biblical ideas come from? How can we reconstruct their earliest incipient forms? Uh, And very concerned to unearth all that. I think that there's an increased realization that what comes later might have something to say uh, about what comes earlier, and that we can't entirely neglect what comes earlier in our understanding of historical development. Um, just because something occurs later in a historical chain of development doesn't mean that it isn't capable of casting light back on earlier events. It may not have a causal effect on those events, um, but it may actually have uh, a parallel. Um, it, it may uh, it may somehow or another be related to that earlier event through a parallel chain of causation uh, that we can't really cha- uh, trace out. But because of the fragmentary nature of our evidence from antiquity, we do have to pay attention to later developments. Yeah, I think um, I would just also recommend our listener goes back to the episode that we had with Brennan Breed. He he wrote uh, a book called Nomadic Text, and it's a fantastic book uh, on reception history. And it's probably one of the best ones out there in terms of theory of reception history. Uh, but I think, like Matt was saying, there's a increasing recognition that uh, you don't get at the meaning of something simply by going to its origins. But also, I think there's a recognition that the Bible itself is reception history all the way down. So the idea that you have simply the original writing of a text, and then there's a sharp line in the sand, and then its reception is is highly artificial. And so just for instance, in the Old Testament, you have in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, a reinterpretation of the law. And, and that reinterpretation itself, at least according to biblical scholars, has itself gone through several stages of of reception. And so 
the Bible is reception history. Also, I think one of the ways that reception history sheds light back on the Bible is that, and this this is an insight that comes from Brennan's book, is that you don't know what a text means until you watch what it does. And so so one of the things that, that Brennan does in his book is he, he looks at a particular text in the book of Job and he follows how it's been interpreted throughout Christian history um, and in Jewish history as well. And what that shows you is the potential that's latent in a text to mean things throughout history. Anything yeah. else you want to add on this one? No, I think that's absolutely right. And so I think that part of the sensibility is that reception, reception history is interesting in its own right and worthy of study, but mm-hmm. also that it is a tool that can genuinely cast light backward on the text uh, and so that we can mm-hmm. see the latent potentiality that was already inherent in the text. Yeah. Um, I think that also, like, we would want to say that all of of uh, all of the Bible is reception history, and I think that's true. Some parts of it, it's uh, it looms larger than others. Um, I would want to say that, you know, for instance, with the book of Deuteronomy or something like yeah. that, or the prophet Isaiah, mm-hmm. um, seeing uh, a lot of the the, uh, the the interior to the book itself as being mm-hmm. a product of reception history is probably sound. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work as well with, for instance, Paul's letters. Yeah, uh, where I would I would say that we don't have, for instance, within the book of of you know First Corinthians, uh, I don't think that we probably have a lot of um, later editorial hands that have become part of the text itself. Yeah, and it's it's not always that the text itself is edited. It can be that Paul himself is a is an interpreter of a tradition, and so so Paul is engaging with older texts in new ways, and so so he is still in that sense part of the ongoing reception history of Scripture, even if Paul's letters weren't redacted. How about question number two, then, though, from, um, from our folks there uh, in the Theology Book Group? Um, biblical studies resources for non-academics. Uh, how about we just, how about we just uh, rapid-fire list off some of our favorite biblical studies resources for non-academics? I'll let you fire first, Matt. Mm. Well, it, it depends on what you want to do. I always have a hard time with this. So if, if you're looking to just learn how to read the Bible better, maybe— um, I think the how to read the Bible for all it's worth is probably a good, like, really simple guide to, as the title says, read the Bible for all it's worth. Um, I think they're, the people at the Bible Project are, are putting out some good resources that are helpful animated videos for understanding each specific biblical book, and they're thesis is that the Bible is a story and is best understood as a story, and uh, they're looking at how each book contributes to that story. So I, I find their little five-minute animation videos really helpful for non-academics. Um, it, in terms of like a, if you want a good sort of one-stop shop, big commentary, I usually point people toward the Erdman's Bible commentary. It's a big old thing, but it's a heck of a lot better than than going online and just landing on Matthew Henry, uh, which a lot of um, people do because they don't want to go to a library, so they pull off Matthew Henry. Um, so I, th- I think those are probably a few. Matt, do you want to add? 
Sure. I'll, I'll add some that would be a part of the list of books that I allow for optional books uh, in my introduction to the Bible class. Mm-hmm. So I they do an independent book project. In fact, uh, as we speak today, their papers are due today in my class uh, in Intro to the Bible on their independent book project. So here's some of the books I allow. Uh, John Barton, Reading the Old Testament. Uh, uh, the Reliability of the Gospel Tradition by Berger Gerardson, uh, a fictional title, The Lost Letters of Pergamum uh, by Bruce Longenecker, and then uh, I also allow another fictional title, uh, The Shadow of the Galilean by Garrett Tyson. Uh, both of those are historical fictions, but written by biblical style- scholars in such mm-hmm. a way that it allows you to kind of enter into the worldview uh, and into some of the most important social and theological realities of the New Testament era. Oh, and what's that? What's uh, that new book by David De Silva? Uh, he wrote a fictional book on the Maccabean. Yeah, um, that's right, The Day of Atonement. I have not read that yet, yeah. but I would like to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, continuing on here, I have The Art of Biblical History uh, by V. Phillips Long, uh, Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict, uh, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, Christopher J. H. Wright. Uh, reading the Old Testament with the Ancient Church, Ronald Heine, uh, and Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God by Gordon Fee. Uh, Phil Long and Gordon Fee were actually both professors of Matt and I mm-hmm. uh, as we were at Regent College together uh, way back in the early 2000s. So Matt and I met actually at Regent College 2001, 2002, uh, studying under uh, people like Phil Long, Ian Proven, uh, Gordon Fee, and some others. Hmm. So those are some of my favorite um, biblical studies titles that would be appropriate more as an entry point to the field. But I, th- I think some of those, it, it, de- it depends on where you want to jump in, too. Um, for some people, they're going to find those too academic. Other people are going to say, ah, oh, give me more. So if if someone wants to follow up with that question and, and be more specific at, in terms of a level, go for it. Okay. Yeah, I should add. I should add two more. Actually, N.T. Wright's "The Challenge of Jesus." I don't think I mentioned, and Scott right. McKnight's "The King Jesus Gospel" are two two yeah. of my favorites, also. Yeah, and any of the this gets a little more academic, but um, any of the books by John Levinson, I've I've always appreciated. Um, okay, so here's a question from Saint Gildas, a collective of theologically minded folk who love Jesus. Hey, on script podcast, love the show. Our question is, why is it that theologians and biblical scholars seem so often divorced from each other? So I'm, I don't know too, too much, Matt, about the divorce rates between um, theologians and biblical scholars who get oh, married. It's high. Um, is it pretty yeah, high? It's high. Okay. It's high. It's way above the national average. Okay. Yeah. And do you think it's like a, a competitiveness or they're traveling so much and they just don't spend enough time together? Yeah, well, I think that one of them is is reading Moltmann at night, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and the other is reading N.T. Wright, and they just can't talk to each other. Well, but 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 if they read, it, it leads to a rift. Yeah, see, see, if they read um, like Moltmann and and Bauckham, they might get along well, better. You know, there you go. You should be a marriage counselor, Matt. Yeah. You know, for uh, systematic theologians who are married to biblical scholars. Yeah, yeah. Well, there there are a lot of pair ups that we could probably point to. Um, I I think that. Partly it's a function of, oh, I don't know, there's so many factors, I don't know, even know where to start, but I think part of it is our university system, which if you have a religion department, stay, say in a state university or something like that, uh, they're going to be studying the Bible in a very different way than you would in a seminary. So I think you're more likely to get synergy between them in a seminary, but because the the guild itself is shaped t- 
to some degree by some of those um, uh, the, some of those working in the university system. You're going to get pulled, even if you're in biblical studies in a seminary, toward operating in a guild simply to keep up with the vast amount of literature in that field, and so you, you don't have time to, to jump field. Uh, I, I'm personally in a situation where I'm here in the UK at a small theological college, and the colleague with whom I work the closest, Lucy Pepiat, she's a systematic theologian, and she loves the Bible. So that's been super helpful for me. In fact, it probably wasn't until coming here that I spent so much time thinking about questions around systematic theology. So I feel like it sometimes can come down to some of those very mundane factors like who you work next to, and then there are the larger factors going back to the Enlightenment and why people ended up pursuing a, a very rigorously historical direction in biblical studies that pulled it away from systematic theology. But Matt, do you want to jump in? It's such a big question. It is, yeah. Well, I think what you what you touched on at the end there, that um, Enlightenment factors of modernity uh, do loom large in this question, because I think that it was assumed that if you bring any kind of theological um, agenda to the table in doing your biblical scholarship, that's in, invariably going to be a distorting lens, uh, and perhaps a naivety about the way in which we're all positioned within a worldview. If there's one blessing to postmodernity, it might be an increased awareness that um, we all do sit within a certain kind of ideology or theology, uh, mm -hmm. and that we can't escape that in any way. Uh, it's perhaps maybe safer to be a little more explicit about where we come from and why uh, as we do our historical work, as we should increasingly recognize that history and the study of history uh, is not uh, ideologically neutral. And so I think that we're seeing, part of the reason we're seeing a resurgence of interest in how biblical studies and theology interface has to do with our emerging postmodern context uh, that says history wasn't nearly as objective as we thought it was. Yeah, and, and I think one of, the, one of the loves that biblical scholars often want to preserve in the face of systematic theology is the diversity of the Bible. That's the thing I probably hear the most, is that biblical scholars are wanting to push back against systematic theologians and say, no, hold on, it's more complex than that. There's more diversity in the Bible. Now, they might overplay that, but I think that that probably is one of the driving concerns in biblical studies. And I, I think sometimes it, uh, I can sympathize with that, uh, that, that biblical scholars, because they work so closely with the text and see all of its texture and nuance, they want to preserve that against any infringement by someone wanting to bring a system uh, to that. Anything else you want to say on that? No, I think that that's a, a at least a good uh, framing. I think of a, of a response. Obviously, it's an extraordinarily complex question. Yeah. How about we go to our our third question then? Yeah. Uh, from Corby Amos. Corby Amos says thoughts on faith as believing loyalty. I see Old Testament scholars use this. Matt Lynch, is this true? Do Old Testament scholars use this? Goodness, you know, I I haven't seen that. 
Um, so I feel like this is more a question for you because of your, your book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. But in terms of Old Testament uses um, of maybe Imunah, I'm trying to tr- trying to think here. I, I honestly don't see the see this a whole lot, um, but as yeah, fa- faithfulness is certainly um, yeah. You know, with a munah, you would see a lot of people understanding that word as faithfulness. You yeah, might actually yeah. interestingly see yeah. um, the idea of believing loyalty a- a- attached more to chesed, right? Uh, to uh, mm-hmm. the idea of love mm-hmm. in general. Yeah, I mean that's that's often connected with covenant loyalty, um, although not simplistically. So I, the the belief part of the the loyalty is is probably not as foregrounded in the Old Testament. Um, there there is a ver, you know there's a, a root for to know, um, yada, uh, and uh, that is connected probably sometimes to to chesed. But I would say that the operative term for that allegiance that Matt talks about is both chesed, the covenant loyalty that God shows humans, and the love that he requires back from them. And so, to me, that that actually, conceptually at least, I'm not talking about New Testament translations of Old Testament terms, but conceptually, love is the response required to God's covenant loyalty to his people. And so, but love itself, as John Levinson unpacked uh, in his book, is much more than a, an emotional term and has a lot to do, especially in Deuteronomy, with loyalty to God and forsaking of other idols, of other uh, deities. So I don't yeah, see that it's specific... It's very close to... Yeah, I don't see that specific formulation, but but the, the basic idea is definitely operative, I guess, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think that we tend to we tend to psychologize and em- emotivize, you know, the idea of love, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament. You know, we say, well, we got to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, and uh, we tend to attach very emotional ideas around this. Where in the ancient context, obedience uh, is what uh, is what love equated to, and and we see something like that in you know G- Jesus's discourse uh, in the Gospel of John. You know, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Uh, as uh, this is this is what what love means. Uh, it, it could be in a, a sense he's defining love uh, in that in that context as uh, being uh, closely related to obedience. So, uh, so then the, the follow up question there: Do you have any thoughts on what we should do? Uh, I suppose that's in response to believing loyalty. So I I think you know as a as a believer I would agree that the the love God requires of his people is covenantal in nature, and so it can't be divorced from law. And that's that's something that is probably a bit off-putting for some Protestants, that, that law could be tied up with it, with the, the response of love, um, but it's it's absolutely inseparable. And so I think I yeah. think that's a huge part of it. Um, I don't mean in a in a way that where I think legalism is when law is the determining factor in the relationship, and I don't think that that's, that's what it means to love God. But on the other hand, I think the loyalty God requires involves the keeping of the law. So I'd like to hear, yeah. Matt, a little well, bit from you about how you how you respond to the the, the possible 
objection that what you're sure. proposing with with lo- loyalty and allegiance is a kind of works salvation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I do give a response to that in the book in a more formal way, but uh, I'm going to actually point to a, a, one of our previous interviews that we did, my mm-hmm. very first interview, Josh Jipp, yeah. um, with his book, Christ is King. He actually talks about this quite a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he does that's very helpful is uh, he explores the category of uh, the law of Christ uh, in the New Testament and Paul's letters and talks about, well, what does this mean? You know, if, uh, if in fact we are to... Um, to have a faith, a faith works or a, a faith law antithesis, you know, as they're they're uh, in disagreement with one another or sort of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, then, in what in what sense can we talk about a law of Christ? As this mm-hmm. is mentioned in a number of places, uh, and so um, one of the things that Jip suggests is that Christ, uh, as the King, was uh, the embodiment of uh, the ideal keeper of the law, and that kings, the way that kingly um, uh, kings were constructed in the ancient world involved uh, as they promulgated law codes that they themselves were supposed to be the premier example of how to keep the law and to embody that in their own being. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that he suggests then as part of this is that our participation in Christ uh, then is a participation in him as the great law giver. Uh, and so that we then are being conformed to the image of Christ that would involve an obedience to his law. Uh, so this is not something that we would want to argue as a, when Paul has a um, language that would suggest um, that uh, the law is danger uh, f- for us. I think that he has in mind especially works of law, and we need to be careful about how we uh, put together what uh, both the term works and the term works of law. Uh, we have to be careful about how we put those together in, in, a, in a more cohesive theology, uh, because the valence of those terms, works and works of law, uh, as we know from our studies of the, the New Perspective on Paul and other things, uh, those things obviously connect to certain kinds of Jewish sensibilities mm-hmm. about what uh, works and about what law-keeping meant that were predicated on understandings of the law of Moses and its interpretation. Uh, and if we have, on the other hand, a positive construal of the law of Christ, uh, it shows that we, we must have a more complex situation going on here. Yeah, and it, going back to your point about Christ as the embodiment of the law and that that's connected to him being king— in the book of Deuteronomy, to go back there for a moment, in Deuteronomy 17, it talks about what the king is supposed to do, and upon ascending to the throne, the first thing the king is supposed to do is not go down to Egypt to get more horses, which is the equivalent of like the F-35 fighter jet in the ancient world, uh, nor is the king to accumulate gold and silver or to accumulate wives, but instead to write himself a copy of the law and then read it every single day. Yeah, and then it, yeah. then it will go well for you. So the king was to to uh, be the the leader in meditating on and then therefore embodying uh, what the law said, not standing head and shoulders above his brothers and sisters, but instead embodying the law along with the people. So I think that yeah. that definitely provides an Old Testament precedent yeah. for what Jip was talking about. Yeah. With, and with Jip, Jip does talk about that too. So you 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 two are lock and step in terms of what, uh, what you're suggesting. Now, Jip argues that it's that we see that on both the Jewish side and on the Greco-Roman side as well. Mm-hmm. That there was mm-hmm. uh, there's evidence that Greco-Roman rulers from this time period also construed themselves as the embodiment of yeah. law. Yeah. Well, that that's a Luke Timothy Johnson influence on Jip there. 
Probably so. <laughs> Probably so. Uh, at least uh, on Greco-Roman stuff, I'm not saying he got the idea from him. Um, Matt, I I have a I have a question for you. This has to do with like um, the the cross as God's response to his enemies, and a lot of people claim that the cross is God's definitive response to his enemies, and it's hard to disagree with that. But I have trouble sometimes marrying that with the second coming upon Jerusalem and the final judgment. So in other words, like, I suppose one way to mesh the two would be something like, by rejecting the cross, Israel got Rome. Um, but this still leaves us with the cross as sort of one of, of, of two possible object, uh, responses of God to sin and evil. Um, so I just wondering if you had any thoughts on the apparent disjunction between the cross as a place where God took the wrath and brunt of his enemies and final judgment or this, the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, I don't, I can't uh, uh, solve that dilemma for you, I don't think, uh, as I, I wrestle with the same sort of disjuncture. Uh, we see this in Revelation, of course, where yeah. we have the line of the tri- tribe of Judah in you know Revelation chapter 5, mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, the one that is worthy to open the scroll. But mm-hmm. then behold, when he actually appears, it's the lamb that has been slain. Yeah. Right. And so that we see that uh, it, we mm-hmm. think it's the conquering warrior, uh, mm-hmm. the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, that's worthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we find it's the lamb that's been slain. Although it's got, so it, how, it's got that lamb's got like seven horns, though, right? Yeah. Uh, it does have a fair number of horns. I yeah. think you're right. Uh, complicated there. <laughs> uh, as we get to the, as we get to the, you know, the uh, Revelation chapter 19, then, and we get the, you know, the image of the of of the warrior on the white horse, you know, uh, coming uh-huh. triumphantly with with Christ's final coming there, uh-huh. um, and you know he's he's treading the the wine press of the wrath of the fury of God and so on and so forth. It is difficult to know. Then, how do we make sense of that? Are we to, um, are we to map that image of the line of the tribe of Judah onto that image, mm-hmm. uh, or are we to say somehow or another, even though he's the rider on the, the rider on the white horse, uh, that nevertheless we know he's the slain lamb? So that the way he's, the way in which he's treading the winepress of the fury of the yeah. wrath of God must somehow or another involve uh, him overcoming through the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to reconcile those images. I'm actually curious um, as there are a number of books that have been written on this front and some still coming out. Uh, it makes me think of Greg Boyd's um, project that's coming out soon yeah. um, with a, a two-volume systematic theology. Uh, the, I think was it called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Yeah. Uh, that will be an interesting book uh, to mm-hmm. look at, mm-hmm. um, see what he proposes. Yeah, okay. That's good. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do you have any, um, uh, any thoughts for us on terms of the Old Testament front, of any trends you see emerging that you think are exciting that you hope to discuss in future on script, or uh, anything that you feel like you're fighting against as an Old Testament scholar that you need the world to hear? Oh, man. I, well, f- first of all, I'm very excited about—I don't know which order we're releasing this, so I'll just, I'll just say it as if we've released it already. Um, but the, the book that I, uh, the interview I did with Brent Strawn, he, he, did, he wrote a book called The Old Testament is Dying. And to me, that, that book embodies something very personal for me. Uh, and, and, and I think, I feel like a lot of my work as an Old Testament scholar, specifically in the church, has to do with arguing for the 
importance and the vitality and the necessity of the Old Testament as a resource, and not simply because it somehow predicts Christ or that it leads to Christ. Uh, that's, that's certainly a part of why the Old Testament has value, but it's, it certainly doesn't uh, say everything that we need to say about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a resource on its own uh, it, it, that, that we need to hear. So I, f- I feel like a lot of my, my work is in that area. And so then this book by Brent Strawn, uh, I, th- I think is very timely. Uh, and I thought at first that the title, The Old Testament is Dying, is a kind of clickbait and you know catchy title to, to draw people to read it. But he, he kind of convinced me in, in reading that book that, that there is a serious concern over the place of the Old Testament in the church. Uh, we could probably extend that to the new as well, but I, but I do think that for a lot of a lot of uh, the church, just the the level of engagement with Scripture is is so thin and so shallow that it leads people to uh, you know want to listen to podcasts like this. Well, preach it, brother. Amen. <laughs> I think that I think it's true that um, there is uh, a tendency to marginalize the Old Testament mm-hmm. and as people to see it as kooky or weird or you know beholden to some mm-hmm. sort of legalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and and I I've think... had, and I've had so many. Sorry, to jump in, but I've had so many Christians say to me something to the effect of, oh, "I'm just so glad that you know." we've that christ has delivered us from all of that and and by all of that they basically mean like all that stuff in the in the you know 79.1 percent of the bible and and so the the assumption there is that jesus rescued us from old testament religion like that that's neither they need to read the Sermon on the Mount, I think, you know, um, as as Jesus says, you know, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, you know, and uh, Jesus's words about, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, yeah. uh, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart in the way in which Jesus doesn't do away with the law, but radicalizes obedience to it. Yeah, ups, uh, ups the ante. Yeah, but, yeah, he ups the ante, exactly. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I think uh, it's maybe time, Matt, yeah. for uh, your big revelation of uh, the way in which you're moving, uh, not mm. beyond me, uh, mm. but perhaps, um, you know, we are learning how to share the love uh, yeah. with a, a broader circle. Yeah, we've, we, we've decided, Matt and I, to bring on a third on-script co-host, and it's Drew Johnson. Uh, he's at the King's College in New York City. And we're really excited to to have him. Uh, I, I think he brings uh, a real wealth of experience and depth to um, what we're doing, and he's going to be a fantastic co-host. We're really thrilled, Drew, to have you along, and uh, look forward to what you're going to bring. And uh, you know, I I'm a little concerned because I did talk to him a little uh, about his his first episode, and I'm a little worried that it's going to be better than any of mine. And I've got a year experience under my belt, so. Uh, I'll have to. I do. I do the editing for the podcast, and uh, I could probably sabotage it so that it doesn't quite come off as well. That's a good idea. I the thing that really distresses me in all this is that yeah. we couldn't find a third a third co-host to invite named Matt. Mm. Um, do you do you think if we were to ask him to change his name that he would be okay just going with with Matt Johnson instead of Drew Johnson? Yeah, I mean, what, do you think it's appro- Do you think it's appropriate to ask him that? Well, it, it would. It would actually. I think it would. His unique USP is is the the fact that he spells Drew D R U, 
Um, oh. So I think that that's his. Uh, it must be like his DJ name or something. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that that developed, but I, I think that I think that's the background to it. I'm not positive, um, but uh, so so he he might object, but um, if we block him, well, it's worth from having access yeah. to the the website then we could just change it there and then he can't do anything about yeah. it. Well, I don't know. I mean, it would sound so much better if we could say this is Matt, Matt, and Matt. I mm-hmm. think he should seriously consider a name change. Um, it, it probably would disrupt his life in just a small way, and it would be so worth it for our us and for our listeners. Yeah, but you can do it legally. Yep, you can go for a name change. Yeah, you can. You can. You absolutely can. And we should we should make sure we point that out to him. Uh, we're excited to have Drew come along board, though, as uh, he's he he has some expertise that we don't have uh, that uh, will be of benefit to all of us. Yeah, I've already spoken with him about some of the people he's bringing on uh, to interview, and it'll be very very good. So looking forward to that. And uh, oh, we also Matt and I just want to say thank you to uh, the people who have donated to us. We've Matt and I have. Uh, so far made $30 off donations uh, over the year. So that works out. Matt, are you good with math? Like per month, what are we making then? Um, wow, that's $2.50 about per month. That's good. I'm, well, the only reason I'm doing on script is actually for the money. So I'm glad that the, to see the cash begin to roll in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we're very grateful for, for all of you, all of you who have donated. And there's still opportunity but the, the opportunity is going to close soon. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but, but yeah. it, 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 now's your chance because if you don't donate now, uh, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. So no pressure, but uh, please consider yeah. giving uh, maybe just $2 a month and uh, you will be blessed in return uh, 70-fold. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that OnScript won't be a true success unless Matt and I are wearing Rolex watches, because mm-hmm. that's what's really important about the gospel at the end of the day. Yeah, that's uh, right. Is, you know, the Rolex watches that we get to wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to know the time when when it comes? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus says to keep alert. And mm-hmm. uh, without mm-hmm. a Rolex watch, how can one keep alert? Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We sure enjoyed uh, doing on, uh, on Script together, and uh, we're, we're enjoying it so much. We're going to share the love, invite Drew Johnson on to join us. And uh, if you uh, are so inclined, we would love it if you would continue to spread the word about on Script. You can share about our podcast on Facebook. Uh, you can pass reviews around on Twitter. Uh, you can tweet out uh, clever things about how much you love the show, whatever you want to do. Review us on iTunes. Uh, We would appreciate it all as we would love to see our audience continue to grow. We want to thank everybody. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.